Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and on my computer screen, I can see Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And I can see Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. I can also see our very special guest, James Fox. Welcome. <laughs> Hi, Barney. Thank you. Lovely to have you here. Well, we'll be talking to James about his long and illustrious career as a journalist and author, particularly his long association with Keith Richards, whose splendid autobiography, Life, he essentially wrote. But we'll also be talking inevitably about the late Little Richard and about soul singer Betty Wright, who we lost this week, as well as about Pete Seeger and Folkways Records. But let's start, James, by asking you, you know, how you got into this writing racket in the first place. <laughs> well, the, the, the earliest writing racket, journalism, words. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh, the wonderful emotional day. I had a summer job on some newspaper and I went down to the print room and saw these great rolling... You know, where, where are we at this point? Where is this? We're in London. I get yes. a job on The Observer. Oh, the, the Observer the... print room. I've been there. The old one by the yep, river. The old one by the river. Yes. We, in fact, my band was photographed in there once, Barney. Really? <laughs> yes. Oh, uh, the, uh, just after they'd closed, after they'd moved The Observer to the what became the up on the Grayson Road. They were, all the machines were still in there. It's an amazing place. Yeah. Now, well, you see, you get an emotional hit from this. Thing. Yes. The smell of the ink, the thing, and I thought that—that's for me. A terrible, terrible. Just wow. the ink that did it. <laughs> <laughs> so then I went to. Uh, I got a job on the Manchester Evening News, which was a real hard school, and they didn't like me because I came <laughs> from the smoke. And I vividly remember my first day on the newsroom with them saying producing my first copy about some ambulance-chasing story, which is only about four lines. <laughs> <laughs> a silence fell over the newsroom as the news editor asked this kid from the smoke, is that the sort of rubbish you write down in the smoke, son? And I said, excuse me? <laughs> he said, you heard what I said. He said, go back and do it again. So, you know, there was, they were clatter back to work again. So that was my initiation. I then went to Africa, worked on newspapers there, especially in the end on Drum Magazine, which was the oh, yeah. extraordinary African magazine that came out of the townships and everything. That was a, that was a great experience. James, how did you come to go to Africa? Did they send you there? Essentially? No, I, I, was, I was sort of really starry-eyed and kind of a pinko, rosy liberation theologist at the age of 12 <laughs> or something, you know. So off I go. I, I got a job on the some sort of scheme or something or word of mouth on the Daily Nation in Nairobi. And I was very much for, you know, new Africa, freedom, all that stuff. So I worked there and then I drove to Johannesburg. I got a job on the Rand Daily Mail through my contacts. I was very young. I was still 20. Wow. 21. Yeah. And this was the big anti-apartheid newspaper. And then I got a call from Jim Bailey, who was the proprietor of Drum Magazine all over Africa. It wasn't just South Africa. It was Nigeria. It was Ghana saying, come and work for us. And that was the most amazing gig yeah. that you could possibly have. I had a book of kind of reissues of Drum Magazine. It's absolutely astonishing. They covered things like the Sharpeville Massacre and all this sort of stuff. Really good photographers and people working for it. It was kind of a bit like Life Magazine, but for Black Africa, wasn't it? Yeah. It had photo essays and... And the extraordinary thing is that it was doing this into the teeth of apartheid yeah. and the police state, so that, mm. you know, you've got these exposés of prisons and so on, and they let it go, I think, because they thought we've got, we've got to know what's going on. This is almost the only way we can find out is through this <laughs> magazine. Did you get in trouble at all? I, mean, did you get... I got into serious trouble, and I, I was very reckless. Actually, 
my experience on the Manchester Evening News where you just don't come back without a story had been sort of, <laughs> I thought this is what you had to do. <laughs> so we had the townships at our disposal. And it was incredible. The stories from this place were amazing. And I tumbled in there and I got seriously involved in some, with some gangsters in Fordsburg and which is a, a sort of what they call coloured township, just a, in, in near Johannesburg. Right. And I have to say, to remember that period, there was a special branch man for every civilian. I mean, it was enormous. It was like the Stasi. It was, you know, all the reporters on the Rand Daily Mail in the newsroom had a counterpart at, you know, the next desk. It was working for the special branch. So nothing. And they thought I was very suspicious because I, I had a Kenya registration plate. I had an American passport and so on. Because you were born in America, weren't you? I was you? born in America. So they did arrest me for going in a township without a pass, doing my normal reporting, and put me in the slammer, which was the most terrifying experience I've still to this day ever had, because they locked me up with these two Africana meth-drinking guys who really didn't like me. <laughs> yeah, I think you could probably you could have just left it at meth drinking African guys. <laughs> they really, they really didn't like me, and they and they threatened to kill me all night. It was terrifying, you know. And I, you couldn't connect to them if, if they'd actually, you know, beaten the shit out of me. There would have been no way I could have got in touch with them because the bell didn't work. Anyway, finally, after two or three days, they released me. But that was my, and I was kicked out in, in the end. They let me go, as it were. And I got a, got a job on the Sunday Times magazine in this, these wonderful years when all the, a lot of money, a lot of talent, a lot of photographers, a lot of great stories. And I went everywhere from Vietnam to all over Africa and so on and wrote stories. Fantastic. Including two of the pieces that we're featuring this week, James, which, I mean, I'm guessing sort of took you outside your normal kind of remit. There are essentially two pieces about the Rolling Stones, and the first of them is focuses almost exclusively on Keith, whose extraordinary autobiography you later worked on with him. And I know you've written, the, I mean, the other piece, in fact, there are two other pieces we're featuring this week. One we're just adding as a new library piece, but they're both about African music, directly and tangentially we may talk about that in a moment aside from when you wrote that piece about Keith in 73 had you written much of, I mean how did you come to write that piece about the stones and visit them I came to write the piece well I was a kind of general writer I was a feature writer on the Sunday Times magazine and I played the guitar I mean I've, I've always played the guitar since the age of 12 almost and I was fascinated by the guitar and to the point where I wanted to work out how Keith played yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't work it out how did he get this sound nobody else was was playing I knew all the blues players I knew all the stuff I could play and so I said to the Sunday Times you know it's time that you know I did a piece and they, they loved the idea of a piece about the Rolling Stones because it was all about drugs and if you get the drugs in and Mick Jagger in then you could get a piece so I I'm going to go and see Keith Richards I didn't say I'm going to ask him how he plays the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> and they'd sort of almost never heard of Keith Richards. They'd heard of Mick Jagger, but he'd never been interviewed. He was too frightening. He was like, you know, you couldn't really approach him. He was like this terrifying kind of crow with a missing tooth, sort of black. Um, and anyway, I, I tracked him down to a rehearsal hall in Rotterdam, I think, and said very timidly and tentatively, um, I'd like to 
ask you how you play the guitar, Keith. He said, oh, I can tell you about that. He, said, <laughs> <laughs> and he was in the middle of a deal. He had sort of money coming out of his pockets. He was counting it and hair. And... What kind of a deal, James? <laughs> well, in those days, I would use euphemisms. Like, I would say he was crushing aspirins under his... his <laughs> I, read that, I read that, but I thought, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray, somebody picked it up. <laughs> oh, dear. So there was a lot of that going on. And then he told me, and you know, I knew exactly what he was talking about. And he said, this is how I do it. It was a total revelation, fascinating, you know, real innovation. And this piece came out called The Sound of the Stones, which you've got now in yeah. the archive. And it had, a funny, it had a funny effect. People thought, fuck, why didn't I think of doing that? So everyone started writing pieces about how you play. <laughs> <laughs> Some very lame pieces came out about you know, famous yeah. trombonists yeah. and how they, you know, how they did but, it. But I, I, I love the idea that you, kind of, you, know, you, you go there and the paper imagines you're going to come back with a sort of big story and a lot of Mick Jagger and all that. And you come back and you're talking about the open G tuning and five-string guitars and how many guitars he's got. And his guitar tech, what's the name? Newman, Newman Jones. Newman, Newman Jones the third. With a snakeskin <laughs> hat. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, so, you know, what did the editor say when he presented them with that? I think they were sort of thrilled to get some sort of inside description of, of what the Stones were up to instead of, you know, the non-interview with Mick Jagger. People kept on trying to interview Mick Jagger. It never worked. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's actually right. I mean, it's interesting because the two pieces we're running, the first one's in 73, which I think certainly Barney and I regard as the tail end of the best period of the Rolling Stones. They were still alive. They were still pretty... They were, they were fantastic live yeah. at that point. Then the second piece is from 76. And Barney, you and I, we both went to the Earl's Court show. Well, it's just on the, it's fascinating for us because it's just on the eve of that week of Earl's Court shows. And, you know, I mean, you, there's already, you're already kind of hinting in the piece that they're not exactly firing on all cylinders <laughs> as, a, as a, <laughs> a performing outfit. What I, I wanted to just pick up on, so that piece, I mean, it really is a remarkable, it's the earlier piece because yeah. you didn't even get pieces like that in the music press. And it ties in with what was so fantastic about life, the book, was where, I mean, so many people have, told me about just as that there's about three or four pages of just solid it's like that bit in this article the sound of the stones just kind of blown up it's four or five pages of keith just talking about tunes talking about guitar and it's just it's just an example of what made that book so outstanding because it really was about it was about music and it was talking to a man who you know yes he's infamous and scary and all of the things that you've alluded to but at heart this is a man he's just an absolutely died in the wool musician and the book was so much about music it was about lots of other stuff but so can you connect these pieces with the book and tell us how that nice little gig came about yeah well <laughs> you, you've really put your finger on it because keith one thing he can do is communicate about music and he thinks about it all the time and that's his thing and that went all the way through through the book and he communicated in a sense you said what leapt out of that sunday times piece you know how did you get a piece across with open g tuning when they did the extracts from the book 30 years later that was the bit the Times chose that's it. That's to extract. And this is yeah. for readers who know nothing about the guitar, nothing about music, but somehow the sort of passion comes through in a very strange way. So I wrote that piece and we became friends, a friendship forged, I have to say, on the anvil of pharmaceutical and, and other... Crushed aspirins. Crushed aspirins. <laughs> 
which, which did me no good at all. And in those days, it was a sort of cottage industry. I mean, it was a suitcase at Heathrow and stuff, and you know, prime. You know, stuff. You could stay up for six days on this stuff. We're still talking about aspirins. Still talking about aspirins. I shouldn't. This is a family show, I know, and I shouldn't <laughs> talk about <laughs> I'm not sure about that. But, uh... <laughs> but anyway, so we, we kept in touch over the years, and we just we obviously got on, you know, and whenever he came to London, he we'd meet up, and one day I had a sort of one of those rock dreams where I've actually got a photograph taken of him and Patty. He'd just taken up with Patty. We're flying into Wembley for a concert. Just me, Keith, and Patty in a chopper, right? Doesn't happen to every. <laughs> no. <show. laughs> never happened to us. And it's, it's Batman. It's only never you know, happened You're to floating me. above Wembley Stadium, which is already full of people. There's already sound coming up, waves of heat and sound coming up from this place. And then you sort of hover down onto the thing and run across the grass. Like, it's quite extraordinary. But the corollary to it is there was a train strike that day. And I missed the connection back, and I walked back the whole way from Wembley to my house. <laughs> and having taken Flew the in chopper. and walked back. This is great. a lovely juxtaposition. I like it. I love it. As your friendship with him, in a certain, we could say that it's good to see you alive because quite a few people who got quite close to Keith didn't make it out the other side. Well, Sucked I didn't see that, that much of Keith, but right. we kept in touch. And also, I knew that from my first meetings with Keith, that he was a really good storyteller. Yeah. A really good sort of economy of phrase, and he remembered everything. And his memory is a very particular kind of memory, which is it's rather like a, a really good novelist. He can remember what he felt then, mm -hmm. you know, and, and accurately what he felt then. There's no filter, you know. And so for something like describing the early tours with Little Richard, you know, for example, it's still very, very vivid. And so I kept on persuading him. We've got to get these stories down. I didn't say, I want to write the book. I said, you've got to get these stories down. They are the great musical stories. Yeah. And eventually, his manager, Jane Rose, thought the time was right. And so I was on. But this is years later. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. I, one story, I mean, he talks about that, what's that extraordinary German couple of sort of like high-class, hipster, vaguely political, the ones who... I believe Peter Green took the acid trip, which put him over the edge at their castle and so on and so forth. And it, it, it's, it's like he's met the whole world at some stage in his life, Keith has. And he sort of, sort of like just pulls them all in. It's, it's yes, extraordinary. he does. He does. But never does he lose this awe of musicians and music. He could never be drawn aside like that. That's why, actually, in the book, when he complains about Jagger, it's because mm -hmm. Jagger does that. And he seems to sort of, you know, he's, first of all, it's a friendship that he thought was very, very special. But also, if anything broke away from the, the love of this band and the making of music, he just couldn't take it. He just, yeah. you know, furious, basically. <laughs> yeah. I love the story. of So I think it's in the second of the, the pieces, the story about how they came to call themselves the Glimmer Twins. Oh, yeah. Which, I mean, I, either I never knew or had forgotten, but 1968, they're on a boat uh, in Brazil with That's a bunch a wonderful of, story. of, of upper-class English people. Yes, yeah, so upper-class English people. The kind of people did... that Mick wanted to be around, That's I guess. right. And they're sort of swathed in these sort of, you know, some sort of tropical thing or looking like Catherine Hepburn or something, and they're on this boat. <laughs> and they're just driven mad by these long hairs, these sort of 
people, and they were keeping to themselves the stones. And finally, this woman said, oh, go on. What do you do? What are you doing? How do you do it? I mean, what, what's going on? Oh, go on, give us a glimmer. <laughs> Just a glimmer. And they said, okay, you know, glimmer twins, it's perfect. It works. Yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic. I, 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 the, in it's the first piece, story. it's very interesting this, that it's just, it's a year after Exile being recorded in France at Keith's Place. And quite a lot of the piece is actually about the, begi- the beginning of the separation of the members of the band. Is that, whereas you say in the piece about how, well, you're told that Keith and Mick would spend three nights together in one of their other their houses and come out with songs. And that had all gone, that, that each would bring their components so it's, it's it's sad, is that, that sort of the roots of well the divisions within the band are sort of becoming apparent even in 1973, and it's, it, in retrospect, it's very sad to read because I mean Barney and I just love that 68 to 72 period Rolling Stones. I mean for us that's the the greatest it's rock and roll band in the world. Rock and roll ever. I ever quite agree with you. I absolutely yeah. agree with you there. Although it's, really, it's it hammers along. Yeah, yeah. You, you say I think somewhere in that first piece. You allude to the fact that in the Stones camp, no one thinks very much of Exile on Main Street. And they've just recorded Goat, they've just finished Goat's Head Soup in Jamaica, which is, I mean, a markedly inferior record. But it's, mm. it's interesting how long it took for people to realize how great Exile was. It's interesting that, isn't it? It's musically so fascinating. It's such a breakthrough. It's got so many new stuff in it and so on. Yeah. I still think it'd be a better single LP. Yeah, we won't get into that. I'll hold to that. (laughs) But it is great. But I think... But but you have... You you put your finger on something there because, remember, Graham Parsons was was around a lot at that time, which must have made a division. I mean, Keith just attached himself completely to Graham at that time. He started writing. One of the things I think is interesting about both of the pieces is that a sort of introspective Keith comes across in a way that's unusual for him, I think maybe what you say about him not being interviewed because people were scared, but he, you know, he he sort of muses on on why Mick Jagger feels he'll never be accepted as a musician and this sort of yes. thing, in, in quite mm. a sort of generous and sympathetic sort of way, which isn't necessarily what one might expect from you know Keith Richards. <laughs> I thought well, it was, that, a, I mean, that, uh, I thought I was a, a sly dig at Jagger, actually, but <laughs> I, didn't, no, I, 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 I didn't read it as a dig. Okay, actually. okay, <laughs> uh, but. Later. I mean, in, the, in your book, I mean... Yeah, well, infamously, yes. Well, James will know. Tell us about Sly Diggs at Jagger and that very uh, that complicated relationship between the Glimmer Well, twins. you must... The, at, the, at the base of all this, you've got Dartford and the train and you've got... Yeah. And he's an only child. And one of the introspections that Keith has about himself is what it's like being an only child. How you have to make alliances, how difficult it is. The alliances come and go. And if you've got one, you hold on to it, and it's crucial to you. And he got one with Mick, and they were together. They were inseparable, you know, and they did everything together. Remember that in the early, in the 63, the time they met, they were on tour with Little Richard, they were doing, they did about a 1,000 shows back to back. They did something like, was it three years without stopping? Barely, you know, this is really close stuff. So there comes this moment of, I don't know what happens. Mick's head is turned, something happens. He sees himself in, in, in something. But Keith feels a sense of betrayal. He feels some sense of betrayal of, sort of friendship or drifting about a terrible sadness. Mm. And when it is then compounded by Mick making fatal remarks like the Rolling Stones is a millstone round my neck, 
this will be a sort of moment when you can't restrain Keith in his book uh, from saying exactly what he thinks. You shouldn't have gone off and done this music. You almost broke the band up, you know, I really mind about it and so on. People thought it was, you know, he shouldn't have said it, it was unfair and so on. But actually, it within that world and within the Rolling Stones band, all the people that know Keith, if he hadn't said that, mm-hmm. they would have thought he had copped out because it was such a big story inside right. the band yeah. of how bad relations were, you know. Yeah. I take it you were aware of that the journalist Bill Wyman wrote this spoof letter that Mick wrote in response, which is actually book. very, very funny. Oh, Did I haven't seen that. Oh, oh you, it's, it's, on, it's online. You've got to, we'll, we'll send you a link to it. It's, it's very funny. It's like Mick's just read the book and he's having a go back at Keith. Well, you know, I was the guy who held you upright on stage for the last sort of 15 years. And yeah, it's like, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, well, there is a bit of toing and froing necessary there, obviously, yeah. Yeah, but it's good. I mean, I love it. Slightly, slightly unfortunate name, Bill Wyman, not that Bill Wyman, you know. But he wrote this thing, I think just as a joke, but it, it had a certain sort of resonance. Credibility, yes. Credibility. This, yes, it did. This, this uh, on, on, on the subject of Bill Wyman, I, he was always incredibly funny, Keith. I remember him saying, I couldn't understand why Bill Wyman, he had all these girls waiting downstairs, you know, and they were sent off every, every 10 minutes. And he said, and what, they said, come upstairs and have a, what, a milky cup of tea with, with Bill Wyman. You know, what did he oh, say to them? You know, do you come from around here? <laughs> <laughs> and the other great story I, I loved, we were in a press conference in Paris. There were six journalists. There was me sort of by now sitting beside Keith in case he went back to these libelous stories, which I'd raked out of the book, such as, yes, when I first met Johnny Depp, I thought he was Marlon's drug dealer, you know. So <laughs> Keith, Keith, no, we've been through that. He appeared on the front page of Sunday. Anyway, the, <laughs> the, one of the journalists said, um, Mr. Richard, I, I can't see very much about with Bill Wyman in this book. Uh, did you not want to, did you want to exclude him or something? And he said, the reason for that is that Bill's not very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, you, you've got Keith down oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's a wonderful, wonderful I, impression. I, I held back before I. Uh... <laughs> no, we, we were going to have to get a bit more of Keith out of you because it's it's one of the best. Yeah. It's not actually that easy a voice to imitate, but you've spent enough time with the man to uh, practically by osmosis. Well, he got a little touchy about that actually. <laughs> <laughs> And, you didn't, and, uh, <laughs> and it, it got back to him that I was going around sort of telling these marvelous anecdotes in, in Keith speak. And so he said to me, um, I'll tell you something, James. <laughs> uh, one day you're going to get your personality back. <laughs> 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 He's so, I mean, one of the, I've interviewed Keith a couple of times, and, and, and I think anyone who has, and you're the front of that queue, really, is the, is the thing that is so surprising when you come with all your preconceptions is what a sweet and humble man he is, you know. He really genuinely, he's sort of so different from Jagger. And the, Jagger's sort of always somehow performing, and, and with Keith, you just sort of get this guy who, he wouldn't be any different if he hadn't become the most famous you know, junky rock and roll rhythm guitar player on the planet. You kind of feel he'd be the same guy. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And in fact, what I was saying about the memory is like that. You know, the fame and stuff hasn't broken or altered the, the hasn't put a filter on this memory. So when he talks about Little Richard, he talks about those, those early days. 
he talks about how he wasn't a very good guitar player at the time, but he thought the band was quite good, you know, and what awe he had of you know, Little Richard and why and all this kind of stuff, which is still absolutely fresh. We should talk, we will be talking about Little Richard. Um, it's fantastic. His name's come up a few times already. And um, we will, just before that, I just want to mention, obviously, probably your, I mean, this is this is your best-selling book, White Mischief, which is an extraordinary book about the white upper classes in Kenya, because it, and it was made into a movie, White Mischief, and just tying it in with the fact that we have these two great pieces that are a world away from Keith Richards and the Stones, um, and they're, they're really wonderful. One of them is about the, the cult of the sappers in Africa, in the Congo, and the other one is a piece of just going in straight to the library, which is about the core of players of Mali and this lost singer that you tracked down oh, called amazing. Fantasako. It's, mm. it's, it's tremendous. I mean, so I just, I mean, did all your African experiences in a sense sort of lead to this? Because I was reminded that it sort of started life as early as 1969 with the help of the, the legendary Cyril Connolly, James. So just tell us where, what the germ of the book was. Well, the germ of the book was that Cyril Connolly, I was on the Sunday Times magazine, I was a feature writer, and Cyril Connolly was on the paper. He was the book reviewer, came in once a week with his copy. And he was also a neighbor of my parents in the country, in Sussex. And we had a series called Unsolved Mysteries. And I said to Cyril one day, he came to lunch at my mother's house, and I said, you know, is there anything you could write, any unsolved mystery that's been on your mind? He said. He's always been fascinated by the murder of Lord Errol and Dells Broughton because he knew some of the characters. So we collaborated. I mean, me, the young, I was 23, 24, put up against you know, Connolly, this great man of letters. And we investigated this thing and we wrote a piece called Christmas at Cairn, which came out in 1969 or 1970. And then he died and he left me all his papers. And I just thought I'll turn this into a into a book. And I went further. I actually sort of solved the mystery, I think I, I did. But with that little glimmer of doubt that keeps it all going for ages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's always good policy. <laughs> so that took me into, I'd already been in reporting in Africa. And actually, I had come across this story. Or maybe I told Cyril about it. Because I, when I was on the Daily Nation, this story was always around. Because Lady Delamere, who was a sort of chief character in that story, was a Still there, landed this woman, this sort of femme fatale, this woman seen stalking around the Mathega Club in her jewels. And I suggested, I remember to the news editor, why don't we do a piece about that? And he said, don't touch that story. You know, We don't touch that. Shut down. So when I came back, this intrigued me. So I, yeah, yeah. And on it went. So then I went back to Kenya to research it. And I, the book eventually came. It was an extraordinary experience. How it leads to African music, I was supposed to be the Southern African correspondent at one point of the Sunday time, and I did go a lot to Southern Africa because I, I'd been there as a journalist and stuff. And I think when I first went to the Zaire, the, the Congo, and heard this Sukhus music, it just took me completely by the short and scrub. I just couldn't believe this fabulous rumba music. It was in every bar. It was in these wonderful places with the neon light. And it was even the official music. Mobutu had nationalized all the bands because they were so powerful. He had to have them playing for the government because 
It was too much of a rival. Wow. So I got onto that, and then I met, well, I'd always known Lucy Duran, who's a great friend of mine, who now teaches African music at SOAS and speaks Mandinka and plays the Kora. And we, we fell in to this world of African string playing. And that opened up a world to me of such total magic. The, the contrast between the sort of colonial world of, of the white settlers in Kenya and this underground world of the African culture and the music was totally fascinating to me. So I traveled a lot with Lucy. We tracked down this singer called Fantasaka, who's got, I think, the most beautiful voice I've heard, really. She's so beautiful. And on it went. And we brought over, or she, or we encouraged early chorus players to come to London. They played in my house. Guests gave money to them. You know, we nurtured them. So I became very friendly with these guys, very close to them, and went to stay in their compound in Gambia and became very good friends with one called Dembo Conte who I had a very close friendship with. And he said to me one day, you know, we really get on well, you and I. You know, we should really be married, except there'd be this problem. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. You say to our, our, our listeners that, yes. that James was flicking two fingers, two fingers against each other. <laughs> against bang, each bang, other. Bang. Yes. It's it fairly clear what he meant. Um, but yeah, but, but I thought that listeners. was so sweet. I thought that was a, a, yeah. a term That's of endearment, great. you know. Yeah. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. James, so, I mean, we, we're, I, I know we could talk for, for hours and hours, and sadly, we're going to have to move on to someone, as, he's, as I say, you've already mentioned, Little Richard, who died, what, a week or so ago, 10 days ago? I mean, this was one of the absolute giants, and it's really hard to know where we start. And then I will just preface our brief discussion about Richard Penham. And we, I thought, let's, I mean, so many tributes have been paid over the last week, 10 days, but I thought, let's just do something slightly different. Actually, this tremendous writer, Ed Jones, just got in touch with us, didn't he, Mark? And he yes. sent us these two terrific pieces from 1975, which are a sort of different side of the Little Richard story. He's touring in Europe, and it's a complete fiasco. And there is angry teddy <laughs> boys booing him because he hasn't got saxophonists and telling him to get rid of that drummer. And, yeah, I mean, it's, they're remarkable. No, and, and he's the poor guy who's promoted this tour... Little Richard is making his life in utter misery, demanding to fly first class, to be up, upgraded hotels, all out of this promoter's pocket. He, um, he loses his shirt on, on, on the tour completely, But it's, 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 it's... I mean, <laughs> they, they aren't long pieces. The first one's a sort of 500-word live review and the second one's slightly longer. But yeah. you put them together and it's absolutely fantastic glimpse of Little Richard and his particular madness at that particular point in his career. As is the Vernon Gibbs piece from The Village yeah. Voice in 1982 when, when Richard is himself as a, I'm not entirely reinvented himself because it's always been part of his makeup, but he's become a preacher and he's preaching in this little church in Brooklyn and essentially railing against his own homosexuality. Whilst, it, whilst, whilst being as camp as anything in the process. Yeah. So, so at one point, the woman sitting next to Vernon says, 
he's still a homosexual. Yeah, you know? I, I'll, st- I'll bet he's still a homosexual. Vernon's a fantastic writer. I'm really glad we got him on board. He's a rare thing in the 70s as an African-American music writer. There weren't many of them around. And he's such a stylish writer. And so he's he's in this this church. In, is it Brooklyn? or Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, Brooklyn. And... Richard is just camping it up like mad. And the thing is, the audience are responding with laughter. And then Richard says, don't laugh, you know, I'm telling you the truth. And then he's mincing again. I mean, it's, it's, absolutely, it's, it's, it's brilliant, it's did mad. You, uh, did you know about his meeting with Tom Jones down in Wales? You, you know about no. that? He's telling me the story, which, of course, those Ted's down in Wales, they were super Ted. They were all dressed up. They, the mega Ted's. <laughs> yeah, they were uber Ted's. They knew the whole thing. And they worshipped Little Richard. He went down there. And Keith tells a story that they went to his dressing room. At, was it the Gome, uh, somewhere like that? There was Gomont a in Cardiff or something? Yeah, I think that's right. And then, so they got into these, Tom Jones and his friends got into Little Richard's dressing room and had this tremendous reverence. And he was a god. So they kneeled down in front of, of uh, Little <laughs> Richard, who went... Boys, oh my little Georgia peaches! <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic! Um, the, the other thing is, Barney, you're talking about the station's career where he's in church. Well, Vernon Gibbs says brilliantly in this: he says he's been born again so often he's getting younger. <laughs> <laughs> I just love this because like, he just he he just bounced back and forth, didn't he, throughout his entire life. Um, and stuff comes out, you know, stories which we didn't know back then about him and Buddy Holly and the crickets on tour, where basically, you know, he would just sit there and watch Buddy Holly shagging whoever Buddy Holly was shagging. Voyeurism was a big Voyeurism part was a big thing. And, really, um, that's so interesting. Well, I remember <laughs> him, so we've actually got a clip of Richard from the interview that I did with him in, in 85. He did a lot of interviews in 85 because his autobiography came out and there's quite a lot about voyeurism in that. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we just hear the inimitable tones of Richard Penniman? Let's. I was out before Elvis and uh, I was black and and they didn't let let my things through. You understand me? I was with RCA Victor before Elvis, but it was Camden when he was black, and if he was white, they called it RCA Victor. And, and uh, it was when I came on the scene, it was swing and sway to Sammy K. I couldn't swing and I couldn't sway, so I rocked. I am the king of rock and roll. I'm one of the most imitated artists ever lived. In the world, Prince is me, Michael is me, and this Jamaican David Boy, he tells he's me. No false modesty from Lord, Lord Richard, bless him. Also, I didn't realise he was so calm. I, did, I hadn't heard his... He, he was, he, in interview, he was as camp as, as you could hope for, really. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really feel... I, you know, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm too young to have heard him the first time round. My brother bought this double A side on the English London records, Reissue of Good Golly, Miss Molly and Lucille. And it just pinning me to the wall. I'd never heard anything quite like that before. Yeah. 
you know, and in retrospect, it was also his my gateway drug to New Orleans R and B because his stuff was mostly recorded in New Orleans, wasn't it, Barney? Yeah, Kazima Matassas with Dave Bartholomew and those guys. Yeah, for me, he's my favorite rock and roller of that generation. The first record Keith bought was Long Tall Sally, I think. Was yeah. it? Was it indeed? I mean, Tutti Frutti, you'd have to say, probably is the is the birth of rock and roll. And I think when you when you kind of revisit. The Little Richard story. Well, you realise it was a sort of a fabulous accident in a way. I don't think he intended to become the sort of camp king of and queen of rock and roll. Because <laughs> he was very much in the mould of the sort of jump blues kind of R&B guys. He was signed to Peacock. When you listen to his early stuff, it ain't Tutti Frutti, it ain't Long Tall Sally. And he's sitting there one day in, I guess, Cosimo Matassa's studio in New Orleans, and he just starts kind of doing... A what, but he just yeah. comes out well, with that explosion, and it's kind of like the big bang of rock and roll. Uh, but the song yeah, is all yeah. about anal gay sex. Yeah. Exactly. Dave, <laughs> and and yeah. Dave, Dave Bartholomew prevails on him to change some of the words. <laughs> Isn't it the most what, perfect what thing that the, the birth of rock? Of, yeah. yeah, the big bang is such a brilliant idea. It was a big bang. It was. It was yeah. a big bang. Absolutely. There was a wonderful piece, actually, well, really interesting piece in The Guardian yesterday by a sort of genuine rockademic who's a professor of American studies at Yale, black writer Tavia Nyong'o. And it's very, very woke piece called The Tutti Frutti Crew. And it's just exploring how it's basically making the point very eloquently that rock and roll was essentially fashioned by a gay black man. It's a great, a great story, story, really. Yeah, it's it, it it a fantastic story. But also the place, of the, ch- the place of the church and all of that. That, that part the of the that piece gets, yeah. talks about that. Well, you know that, that, that black Water. American expression is so linked to the church, to the black American church. I mean, the one thing I think she missed in that piece is she should have mentioned Sylvester, who, in a sense, had a very similar path, who grew up in the churches like Little Richard did. And took that with him into his disco, into his very gospelly disco sort of stuff. You know. Sure. Anyway, it's, 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 it, you know, I, I just love. love I mean, I think it. without Little Richard, I think we can safely say, you know, we might not have had the Stones at all. We might not have had, you know, the, the rock and roll side of the Beatles. You know, Paul McCartney was was, was literally taught to scream by Little Richard. So <laughs> That's it true. kind of like yeah. tutorials. <laughs> yeah, they're on YouTube now. Um, Hello, welcome to my screaming tutorial. Yeah. So, so you know, far, farewell, Richard Penniman, yeah. without whom... I'm amazed he lived as long as he did. He did, he lived a long time. He lived in the Hyatt House. And I know lots of people had the experience of going up in the lift at the Hyatt House on Sunset with little Richard. <laughs> lived at the top. I only went up once in that lift with all his luggage. I think he'd just come back from Las Vegas. <laughs> and there's just all these sort of furs and um, suits. When my band was recording Muscle Shoals, we were being looked after by a guy called Monkey Wamak, who was Travis Wamak's son. And he and his dad were part of Richard's band at that time. Yes. And they just loved him, mm-hmm. you know. And they said, and they all called him Richard, you know. Yes. Like, oh, we call him Richard. And I said, what, what do you call him? Do you call him Little or, <laughs> and yeah. it's, or Mr. Penniman? You know, they said, no, we call him Richard. Rich, and they, they yeah. adored him. Yeah, yeah. And the did. music is still just electrifying. Oh, you listen to it now, and it's just yeah. exactly that jumping out of it. It's amazing.
we probably have to talk about Betty Wright, yes, Mark, because yes. we've lost her too, and we're all big, big fans of Betty Wright. Clean Up Woman, one of the most uh-huh. unique and extraordinary classic soul singles from the 70s. Absolutely fantastic. I, Shura Shura was a kind of minor hit in this country when it came out, and I loved it. Knew nothing about its provenance, had no idea that it had been written by Alan Toussaint and so on and so forth. And then years later, I, I became a fan of this band called Rugulator. I had this guitar player called Danny Adler who had this sort of rhythm lead style that he did. And a friend of mine said, if you like that, you've got to listen to Clean Up Woman. Listen to Little Beaver's guitar playing on that record. You know, it's three guitar parts. And so I, I got it as a seven-inch single, and it was, this is fantastic. Then about a few months later, I was working in a bookshop in Charing Cross Road, and over the road was our price records, and they had a big remaindered records section, stuff from America, probably Morris Levy's All the imports. cutouts, the cutouts, yeah, the cut, TK the cutouts. cutouts, yeah. They had all these records from, by TK on the TK label or Alston or you know, whichever yeah. version of the label it was. And so I used to go out with armfuls of these things. So I was really hmm. getting into soul music in a big way. And there's one album, Danger High Voltage, which Shura Shura came up, which I reckon is still one of the greatest R&B albums I've ever heard. It's a f- fabulous album. Albums. I love Danger High it's Voltage. A, it's so I, I, great. I saw Bessie last year at the Barbican. She was fabulous. You know, you know I'm... She, I'm gutted because you saw it and it was a sort of midweek kind of gig and she was doing a second one the night yeah. after you'd seen her and and you said how great she was and I very nearly booked tickets and went but then didn't because they were expensive and it was the middle of the week and whatever and I just regret so much not having gone to oh, see to see that it's gig Betty right Betty right and she she is fabulous she's 17 when clean up woman came out but she had been singing professionally since about 13 or 14 again out of the church again in the 86 she had a a minor hit with a song called pain which was yeah. just fantastic yeah and then after that she produced Joss Stone a couple of Joss Stone albums she did a fabulous album, The Roots, in yes. 2012. Yeah, 2011, yeah. I think, yeah. Which is as, as, almost as good as anything she'd done in her career. She never stopped. No. Like Little Richard, she did. She sort of went back to God, didn't oh, yeah. she? We've got a little clip of her, not actually talking about God, but it's just a lovely, it just shows what a, a wonderful, exuberant, yeah. gorgeous yeah. person she was. So let's just hear that. I'm more uh, into live performance and recording. I think it's because I'm a people person, and in recording studios you got about three people, and I'm a ham. You know, I, I just come alive when I see a lot of people. The more, the better. I just show off. You know, some people are just born ostentatious by nature, and that's me. You know, I have to be center stage, and um, I pass that to my baby. I'm a young it's... child at this point. I love that. I've passed oh, to my oh, baby. God yeah. help her. It's uh, great. It's, uh, she comes yeah. off so wonderfully. She, uh, mm. she, she's, she's just fabulous. Yeah. So Do you we, remember Clean Up Woman, she... James? Do you remember that record, Clean Up Woman? I don't. Uh, Actually, gap. Go uh, listen to it. Now I do. I will go. Yeah. I mean, and just... Danger High Voltage as well, like, Mark, the, as the Mark album. said. Is, <laughs> that, that one you were talking Yeah. yeah. Um, she's she's, she's uh, absolutely fabulous. Uh, what's so. shocking? I mean, I'm 64. She was only 66 when she died last week. 66. And to think that 
I was still at school when her records are coming out. I mean, that, that's absolutely yeah. terrifying. So you've got anyway. two, two years to make a record as good as Clean Up Woman, Mark. It's, it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> it ain't, ain't going to happen. No. Well, so we have two pieces about Betty, and one of them is from 77. One of them is by John Swanson. One is Frank Owen talking to her in 86 when Pain, the record Pain, has just come out. Yeah. It's time, Mark, mm-hmm. to talk about this week's audio interview. Yes, absolutely. Let me just shrink my screen so I can see my notes. Exit, exit full screen. That's the one. Is this all going to be in the episode? Absolutely. It's all going to be in the episode. This is vital <laughs> social documented history. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, th- th- this is a really, really, really good interview. I thought it was going to be an interview about Pete Seeger. It's not. It's Pete Seeger's memories of the rather splendid Mo Ash, Moses Ash, who ran what became Folkways Records. And he talks about Mo's business practices, why Mo did this, Mo did that. And, well, we're listening to a clip. He talks about how Mo's goal was to document music. You know, that some academic would go to Africa, come back with a tape of sort of thing you're talking about, James, you know, precisely. And he'd put it out on Folkways, really well presented with brochures, with properly written documentation. And, you know, he'd never remove a record from catalogue. Once a record was in the Folkways catalogue, it stayed there, even if it only sold 15 copies a year. And they're still all available to this they day. Are still That's really. incredible. I, know. I mean, it's an amazing thing, Folkways. Um, it's just beyond belief. Yeah. Now, yeah. Think yeah. About it. So we, let's hear a clip and then we'll talk about Folkways and Mo Ash and Pete Seeger. And this is about the documenting of music. I think it's a, a very big contribution, not just the fact that he recorded things, which any fool could say, well, that record is not going to sell. But he'd say it's it needs to be documented. Mm-hmm. His basic principle mm-hmm. here is something which, if it's not documented now, mm-hmm. it'll be lost forever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So some professor comes back from a field trip to a dist- from distant place part of the world and keeps playing the tapes in the classes, but it's a nuisance to have to make copies and writes folkways say. Uh, would you be interested in releasing a record? Yeah. Uh, I don't think you'll sell many. Uh, Mo said, uh, I can't pay you much, maybe $100, just to repay you for the cost of the, fil- of the tape you used mm-hmm. and uh, the time it'll take to put together a brochure. Mm-hmm. The brochure that went along with the Folkways record was a very important part of it. Yeah. Most records just came out with a few words on the back cover. And he gave a complete booklet, sometimes a big fat booklet, yeah. Yeah. with the words of the song, sometimes pictures, yeah. sometimes an essay. Yeah, I mean, Incredible. absolutely. He talks about Mo's business practices. I mean, we were talking about this yesterday, Barley and I, that he figured that you either stay pretty small or you get huge. There's no in-between. You'll get swallowed up. And that by working on the margins, by working in very niche areas, staying a small label, you may not make a lot of money, but you can survive to, to keep making the next record you want to release. Mm. So, James, you, you sent me in the week this wonderful picture. I mean, I knew you had spent your early your youth in America, you were born in Washington, D.C., but you sent me this fabulous picture from, I think, 1960, if I'm correct, of you playing guitar with the Reverend Gary Davis. 
And so I thought, well, he must know something about folkways. Um, so <laughs> t- tell us just a bit about, you know, t- tell us how you came to be sitting there playing guitar with the Reverend Gary Davis and what your kind of involvement with that kind of Greenwich Village folk blues scene was. Well, I mean, it's, it, it's incredible. I, I picked up a guitar first, a school kid had one. And I, by incredible chance, my family knew Rory McEwen, the McEwen brothers, who were playing on this Tonight program. They played topical calypsos and they played, but Rory had been to America. He'd met Leadbelly's wife. He'd bought a 12 string. He was deep into it. Folkways had recorded him and his brother singing Scottish oh, songs. Right. I just jumped in. I mean, I, I was totally, utterly, fat. and then I went round to Rory's house, which is a, in Tregunta Road near the mm. Boltons, which was a real mecca at that time. There was a moment when folk and pop and everything, the Everly Brothers, Bob Dylan, uh, folk, was all sort of mixed up together. It was very exciting. It was when the freewheeling Bob Dylan came out, period. I was at school. And I picked up, I, I attached myself to Rory, who taught me how to play the 12-string. So, and I heard Blind Boy Fuller for the first time, which is one of those moments when the air changes, <laughs> the actual color, the actual sort of <laughs> atoms of the air change. Life is different after this. It's yeah, never going to yeah. be the same again. Right. Blind Boy Fuller, Aeroplane Blues. I was hooked. So he'd been to New York. He knew all these people. Everyone knew Rory. People used to come back and forth in his house, and he knew Pete Seeger. The crucial thing about Folkways and Pete Seeger was that Folkways had produced a thing called Pete Seeger's Guitar Guide for Folk Singers. Key, key document. Mm -hmm. A record and an instruction book of how to play the guitar. And everybody, I'm sure even Bert Yantz and all these people must have used that record for their right. basic thing. You've got the church lick out of it. You've got the Woody Guthrie stuff out of it. You, you learn to all this stuff, how to tune it and everything. And there was Pete Seeger's voice, just like that. I don't want to be churlish. <laughs> oh, go, oh, go on. on. I love <laughs> Nothing's ever stopped I mean, you in Pete the Seeger's, past. Pete Seeger's achievements are incredible, but he was incredibly righteous. Yes. And out of this, you can hear it in the voice. There is yeah, a sort yeah. of righteousness there. You know? And now you, you think back and cringe to songs like Where Have All the Flowers Gone? or What Did You Learn in School Today? And you think, stop being so fucking pious. You know? <laughs> yeah, he was <laughs> pious, wasn't he? And he <laughs> sounds pious in yeah. this audio. I mean, fa- fa- famously, he was the man who tried to take an axe to the wiring to the, the amp fires backing Dylan and the Newport Festival. Well, you know, I don't say it's it, not it, true, but I it, hope I don't it say is. it's not true. I, I hope it's it got to be true. true. That's yeah. Rashomon um, time again, isn't it? It's better <laughs> if it's true, so it's true. Yeah. <laughs> That's how it works. But, but, that, isn't that how Donald Trump thinks? <laughs> yeah. But this interview is actually really nice because in some ways, Tony Sherman, who did the, did interview, the interview, had heard stories about Moash being, let's say, shall we say, tight with the royalties and so on and so forth, and had heard that Pete Seeger had fallen out with Moash over just that. And he's not. He's incredibly generous about it. We'll listen to a clip at the very end of the show where he talks about precisely that. He says, well, you know what? I knew I was going to you know, depend on these records. I, who cares about royalties? The main thing was to make the records, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite astonishing. You, you talk about surviving. I don't know how he survived at all yeah. with these records. He had cost of production, you know, sell five copies. How many, how many people bought McEwen Brothers singing Aberdeen folk songs? Well, well, he talks in an interview about one specific thing. He said that if you're going to be small, 
charge more money. Yeah, so he he, he, he did charge a lot more yeah. for so these records. Each album right. would be, let's say, three dollars more than a pop album would be. Yeah, yeah. But people really wanted these albums. Yeah. As you say, you're working in a niche. People will pay that little bit extra, and that was kind of what kept the thing going. Well, you know, um, yeah. I mean, looking back, I think my whole education at that time you know, what turned me into sort of my interest in journalism and so on was actually the Folkways really? cut wow. Because they had wow. things like, they had the entire southern prison system. You could read all about Parchment Farm and all that stuff, what was going up on, on the Brazos River. You could read about the Depression. You could read about Dust Bowl. You know, it had this incredible background. Where else were you going yeah. to get this? this a history of American working people, in yes, a sense. Ex- yeah. Precisely. So, I mean, we'll... Now we'll listen to another clip, but he's, again, is self-deprecating about how he failed to spot the hit when Woody Guthrie did an EP, probably a 10-inch record, which so, yeah. was entitled and included This Land Is Your Land. <laughs> it's very funny. I'm rather pleased to hear that. Tom. appreciated getting a small salary mm-hmm. and Mo was willing to release whatever Woody had mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and at that time Woody was writing a, a lot of children's songs for his own uh, kids mm-hmm. so one great little record came out after another mm-hmm. and then came out a 10 inch uh, LP called this Land is Your Land. And one of the songs in it was a song that I remember thinking was one of Woody's lesser efforts. Uh, I said, so simple. So on. Well, I, I was sure taught a lesson. It was a triumph of simplicity. Did Mo like that song? Do you remember when he first... Do you know reaction to Oh, well, that's why he, he titled the record after the song. The song was only one of a dozen songs on the record. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island. It's a great story. Like I said, we'll listen to, uh, I think, a fabulous clip about the, the, the royalties and so on and so forth at the end of the thing. But it's a really... It's, it's the slight problem with this interview. It's quite hard to hear some of the questions because Tony Sherman was very clearly pointing the mic to the subject, which is a good thing. I really enjoyed digitizing this. Yeah, letter. I did too. You know, and whatever one thinks about about Pete and all his music, he was a man of enormous moral integrity, and you hear that. And this is not long after Mo Ash has died, of course, and the Smithsonian has acquired the Folkways catalogue, and it still keeps the entire catalogue, as it were, in print after after all these years, which is a, a, a laudable thing. And I think Tony goes up to, because Pete had this amazing house on the Hudson River, and the Hudson River became a very important part of his life and music. And it's actually, I found it absolutely fascinating. Not yeah. not knowing that much about Folkways or even Woody Guthrie, I I felt sort of kind of privileged to hear this, Mark. But yeah, also, you, you have to remember that Pete had a lot to do with Lead Belly too. So exactly, this, and he does talk and, about Lead Belly in, as uh, well. Which is he, absolutely crucial. And he does. Without Lead Belly, no Van Morrison and so on. And well, well, Lead Belly knew, I went to see Lead Belly's widow, that one of my... 
one of my pilgrimages when I was uh -huh. 15 on that same Gary Davis trip. I went, I opened the guitar case. There was the 12 string. And I said, <laughs> do you know where Gary Davis is? And she said, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's down here. You call so and so. And I went down to Greenwich Village and there he was. We took a Fantastic. Picture. So no, we he, all knew each other. He, so it's quite interesting because in a way that, that I mean, Lead Belly had, well, there were two things. First of all, the Lomax connection, basically being kind of inverted commas rescued, but then appallingly patronised by the elder Lomax. Is it Alan the father? I, Alan, Alan. Yeah. There's a terrible video. You can find it on, on YouTube film. You can find it on YouTube where it's Lead Belly at Alan Lomax's, and he's been basically told to dress in overalls and 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 go yes sir yes um yes um yes um yeah to this to this guy you know you know Leadbelly actually wanted to dress in smart clothes and gallivant with the girls and have you know, drink fine liquor and all that sort of stuff. He was no step and fetch it, and he resented he that he he fell out with Alan Lomax. Actually, successfully sued Alan and Lomax. Did he? Yes, which is pretty really? amazing. Probably with the help of Mo Ash. Right. And these guys the are living. Of, in, of course, these guys are living in 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 New York City. Now. Yeah, They're yeah. Not living on a plantation. Exactly. And it's interesting yeah. to hear Pete talk about this, like second or third floor walk up on the Lower East Side. I think between Avenue B and C, which which is where. Mr. and Mrs. Leadbelly live, you know, and it's, it's just, I love little details yeah. like yeah. that. That's yeah. I loved it. I said, all right, absolutely. And so actually, Leadbelly had, a, had a, a really good relationship with Moash, you know, a, a better relationship than he had with the Lomaxes. Yes. Um, but anyway, it's great. Really, you know, for all you people out there, have a listen to this interview. It's really fascinating. Great. So great, James, to get your kind of personal input on yeah. that. So fantastic. And as we always say, please stick around because Mark's going to just talk us through some of his highlights from the new library pieces this week. And just jump in, if anything, you know, if the mood takes you. First thing is, again, this new writer we've got on board, Philip Elwood, uh, San Francisco Examiner. And he sees the classic Coltrane Quartet live in San Francisco in 1965. This is one with Jimmy Not Garrison, McCoy, McCoy Tyner, Elvin Jones. This is like, you know, uh, yeah. John Coltrane, great. And Philip Elwood says, the best of jazz is always a most personal and communicative musical form. Coltrane is expanding jazz outward to undefined horizons. And though the destination often seems uncertain, the way is obviously well charted in his astonishingly imaginative and creative mind. Yeah, it's just great. Yeah, this is a nineteen sixty-five review. This is why I very love good. my job sometimes. <laughs> it's a nice piece of writing, though. Isn't yeah, it? It's, it, it, he's very good. And second thing is uncredited, though I suspect by Disco Music Echo's house hippie Hugh Nolan. And it's a review of the Velvet Underground and Nico <laughs> from 1967, which is there aren't many reviews of the Velvet Underground and Nico. No. He says, their music's hard rock and roll brought up to date with electricity. An electric viola adds a distinctive, cruel, harsh note. It's particularly evil on Venus and Furs and Heroin, two of the best tracks on the album, which are never likely to get played in the BBC. <laughs> um, yeah. Let me see. Let's skating through up to seventy six. Michael Watts reviews Kate and Anna McGarrigal, the eponymous debut album from those two, and he loves it. It's a long review. It's like twelve hundred words, which is a longer review. And he says, as far as this album is concerned, Kate's writing slightly the more consistent, perhaps, and yet Anna's heart like a wheel is its centerpiece a tender, slow-bleeding song in which the lyrics and the tune are exquisitely shaped by vocals that wrap themselves around the melody. Well done, Michael Watts. One I of the most the... beautiful songs ever written. I, we love I that. Love, album, I think it's wonderful too. Do you I, agree, I, James? Yeah. Yes, I do. I it's absolutely an absolute agree. heartbreaker. 
Aubrey. They did good at those kind of songs, too. They had others. Some say heart is just like a wheel when you bend it, you can't mend it. Skating through from my stuff, a, a very good Brian Case interview with Ian Deary, Melody Maker, 1978. And, you know, Brian Case didn't write much about kind of rock and roll, but he wrote a few times about Ian Deary. They clearly had a, something of a bond. And Ian Jerry says, if you regard an LP as an exhibition of your work, then you do you only do that when you're ready to show a selection. It's about how long it takes him to kind of put records together. He compares it with what happens if you do everything too often. He says, they want to do what happened to all the good comedians like Frankie Howard. Put him on every week and suck him dry, which is, you know, I think a really fair point. Lovely is it a Don Waller interview with Ashford and Simpson, which I love because there aren't many interviews with Ashford and Simpson, huge heroes of mine. David Toop in The Times in 1990 interviews Billy Idol rather sweetly. He says, um, <laughs> that was partly the joke of calling myself Billy Idol. It was a reflection of how, in the early days of English rock, people were invented by a Svengali. Everybody's changing their names as if there was a, there was a Svengali telling you, wear leather, be Billy Idol. It's really us doing it, <laughs> making, making fun of it, which I think is quite nice. <laughs> Ice-T interviewed by Rob Tannenbaum for GQ. People say I'm violent, but an Ice-T album has its political points, it has its ghetto points, and it's also got, damn, look at her ass. <laughs> <laughs> and he talks, about, he talks about Ice Cube. He says, Ice Cube is heavy off into that Muslim shit. He doesn't like white girls and shit like that. I'm quick to tell a white girl, look, I ain't no Muslim. <laughs> See, we're, we're not, not sneeringly woke, Jasper. And lastly, just mentioned there's a very good history of Acid House by Andy Kreisel for the New Musical Express in 1998, celebrating the 10 years of the, the second summer of love. That's my lot. That's wonderful. Jasper, what have you got for us? Well, I just, I'll just mention a couple of things. First of which is a live review of Joanna Newsom, who we talked about a few weeks ago. And whom I worship. Yeah, well, I mean, I think she's I think she's fantastic on record. I've never seen her live, but I've seen some l- videos of her playing on YouTube and she's remarkable, sort of enchanting presence. But this is a live review. Lisa Verica goes to see her at uh, the Apollo Hammersmith and comes away thinking that it was a great gig and sums it up as, on record, Newsom may remain an acquired taste, but here she was a paralysing Pied Piper who could do as she pleased without ever coming close to breaking her own spell. I think is a nice way to sum up how you know Joanna Newsom's music is she's wonderful I mean we talked about her fairly recently so I won't go into too much but she's just great so this is all new stuff which is flooding in to your yes flooding flooding Flooding. we need sandbags and how many years have have you been out with there's no there's no end there's no, there's end. no end. No, I mean, this is, it's like all eternity, you know. It's sort of a kind example, of hell, really. Um, I got, Virus and I got Philip Elwood on board, what, two weeks ago? And I've so far harvested 800 articles of his, and I've only just reached the end of 1975. Oh, God, you <laughs> Elwood, so stay then. tuned, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and then I just... Wanted also to mention a album review from The Wire, Neil Kulkarni reviewing JPEG Mafia's oh. album, The Second Amendment. And JPEG Mafia is quite an interesting rapper. It's a dark sort of, you know, a time again for hip hop to look beyond its normal loci of national and international significance and focus on those scenes so cut off from the mainstream that giving a fuck about crossover or success isn't just spiritually undesirable, but downright impossible. 
I'm a big fan of Neil's writing. I think. It's great. He's, it's he's, it's he's, really he's great. And, he, and he's really interesting about this, you know, dark hip-hop artist, JPEG Mafia, did an album with a, a song called Freaky. Shit-stirring polemics, deranged noisecapes, music that hums and gurns and lurches and crashes like the city it comes from. Just what we need while facing down 2017's breaking Armageddon. Uh, it's a, it is a, an interesting album. You know, it has a lot of textures and, and darkness. And I've said that word about three times now, so I'll stop. But it's dark. <laughs> it's dark. dark. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, this is a great review of it that, that understands it. And I think that's worth a read. I hadn't heard of JPEG Mafia, I must confess. I like to think in an earlier age. He might have been on Folkways. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, don't know, I don't know about that. With, tra- with, with tracks with names like Bumbo Pussy Rasclat. So I, I'm not sure about... It's just, a, it's just the, 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 fo- the folk music of its day, really. It wasn't that difficult to get on the <laughs> There is a Folkways album, which is, is called something like... Uh, if you look at the, the Wikipedia page of Folkways... There's an album cover called sort of Gangland Chants or something. So one of the albums, because they went and recorded gangs kind of essentially doing their their sort of thing, you know, and and then lastly just because i thought it was funny it's james blunt and the how we made series talking about how they made you're beautiful which of course was a massive oh, hit massive God. massive hit he's talking to dave simpson in 2020 but actually james blunt is quite funny and quite self-aware. If you look at his Twitter feed, you'll see that he delights in just, you know, mocking himself and, and mocking other people that seem to, you know, want to mock him. And he's quite honest about You're Beautiful. It's portrayed as a romantic song, but it's actually a bit creepy. It's about a guy, me, stalking someone else's girlfriend while high. <laughs> just like... <laughs> I just like Fair that. He's, it's funny. Fair it's enough. a funny article. I mean, you know, the song is the song. Everyone knows it, and it is a sort of simpering kind of sickly sweet thing. But actually, it has that sort of creepy undertone that James Blunt talks about quite bluntly and quite funnily. So that was my last thing that I wanted to mention. The Blunt James Blunt. Um, Indeed. You're going to finish this tremendous episode where we've talked to... You're going to, you're going to finish with James Blunt, are you? In all seriousness. You have really loads of tone. That's, that's, that's based You have really loads of tone. But actually, <laughs> he, I, I, God, this, this is going to, this is going to lower the tone even more. I, I, I was forced to watch Celebrity Bake Off with him in it, and he was quite endearingly self-deprecating. I must confess, I couldn't sort of hate him. He was quite sweet, and he won it. I think. Anyway, this is all. This is all really letting the well, whole episode the down. Yeah. I think. No, I'm being, <laughs> I just I'm had being to mention silly. it. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. You're beautiful. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And he's beautiful. We're all too beautiful. (laughs) Well, you guys are incredibly, you know, I mean, spend an hour with you guys. You you really know your stuff. It's incredible. What fun. I mean, what what more joy could there be? It's been been lovely. It's been wonderful having you on the podcast. It's been really great. On this family show, you've been one of our greatest guests. It'll be about 10 minutes long, I think, once uh, Jasper's done the edit. But James, <laughs> honestly, thank you so much for yes. coming in. Yes, thank and, you. Um, well, thank and, you. And uh, good luck with what I, I know really there's, there's, at some point there's this book you're, you've done with Damien Hurst, which which is supposed to be coming out yeah, for about the, 10 years oh, now. Yeah, he's fiddling around with it. He's, he's, he's revising his life. <laughs> like revising or rewriting? <laughs> well, he's 
He's revising and then with a view to rewriting. Well, look, think. good luck with all your... Sometime between now and infinity, <laughs> I expect this book to appear. Good luck with all your future in, endeavours and projects. And, you know, we've just had such a ball talking with you. And, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll see you again soon, I hope. And yeah, I think that's yeah. probably it, isn't it? We're going to say goodbye. We'll be back next week without a guest. Hoping for a guest in a couple of weeks. But the, the, the original Troika, the power trio of Rock's Back Pages... We'll be back without a guest next week and we'll hope that you will tune in then. So bye. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 Where have all the flowers gone? Long time passing. I used to call Folkways a two-horse operation. He and Marion Disler both working like horses. And I wasn't going to complain if people didn't get royalties because here was a job that was being done and it needed to be done and nobody else was doing it. No government in the world was doing it. No capitalist government, no socialist government, no museum. They claimed to do it. The Library of Congress claimed that they had a, a piddling small catalog compared to Folkways. Uh, Musée de l'Homme in Paris claims to be doing it, but they have a piddling small catalog compared to Folkways. Yeah. All these big multi-million dollar operations were inching along, but Mo was just galloping along, doing the job that needed to be done. I'm not going to complain. Oh, when will you ever learn? That was Pete Seeger in conversation with Tony Sherman in 1987, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest James Fox. Visit his website at jamesfox.co.uk. The host were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. You're beautiful. You're beautiful.